Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia. And joining us this week is Zalira. Zalira, welcome. Hi. Uh, So, Zalira, you're a second year history PhD at the University of Manchester, is that right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be studying here and how you came to your project? Well, honestly, it's all kind of a wild ride. I originally started out in undergrad doing African American history, just because... Well, that's usually the go-to, especially where I'm from in South Carolina, where we're just kind of surrounded by a lot of uh, slavery-related things. So when I was an undergrad, I kind of ended up learning a bit more about diasporas kind of all over the place. And this one kind of interested me in particular when we were learning about the transatlantic, because really you don't tend to hear much about Black British history in general. So... When I was an undergrad, I ended up doing a study abroad in Scotland, and that's kind of where I was getting involved with a lot of actual, like, really, like, intense primary source material regarding Black presence in the UK. And so my final year, I was already kind of nervous because applying to a master's program or grad school in general was just terrifying, especially since we were just kind of lambasted into it. I was not prepared. I kind of just shot my shot because... When it comes to studying abroad, you don't really have to pay for the application. And I was like, you know, I'll just put it out there, see how it goes, instead of paying over $100 to be rejected. (laughs) Um, So basically, when I did that, well, I did get in, and that's kind of where my research went a lot further, because I knew I wanted to go into Black British history. I just didn't really know, you know, what kind of specific era I wanted to do. So where did you do your master's? I did my master's here at the University of Manchester. Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) And from there, everyone was like really helpful with helping me find my niche. And I feel like when you're actually here, it helps you find the resources you're looking for. Because back home, I don't think I would have ever found anything about like the Windrush scandal or anything, because it just seems like it's just like kind of down in there. (laughs) And that's what really made me kind of a form my kind of interest in a lot of these things that I'm currently doing now, uh, especially being so close to Maasai, which is one of my main points of study, since I'm analyzing the not only just the racialization of the riots, but what kind of led up to them before that. Could you possibly give our listeners a little bit of context then to your project, what period you're looking at, Yeah, just in case they don't know? Yeah, so I particularly look at Black British history in the 1960s to early 1980s. And from there, I specifically look at Maasai, Manchester, Chapleton, Leeds, and Toxteth, Liverpool. And from there, I just kind of look at these specific, very racialized communities. They've been referred to as, you know, race relations capitals. But usually that just means like they have a majority uh, ethnic population that usually this is Black or Asian. And from there, I kind of look at how these communities are interacting with each other how they're dealing with the prejudice and discrimination around them, and how they are kind of finding ways to create spaces of their own, whether this just be finding housing, finding places for themselves in the educational system, even things simple as uh, the formation of Carnival, that in and of itself was an act of rebellion for them and a place where they could deem a space for themselves and kind of reclaim their own national identity Because one of the most interesting things that I kind of look at into my research is when the term Black British really kind of comes into formation, 
And specifically from here, I'm kind of looking at the buildup of this kind of discrimination that's happening post Windrush and how it develops into this kind of rage in these communities that leads into the riots. But then looking at how the riots are looked at now, because I feel like the racialization of it was really downplayed after they happened. It just seemed like something that didn't really want to be discussed because while there were a, there was also a very strong white working class presence in these riots, racism did play a major role in the kind of anger and frustration that led up to them. But this is really kind of taken out of the major newspapers and articles that you kind of see. And this is one of the things that I'm really kind of interested in looking into from there. But then not only kind of focusing on like the doom and gloom, but also looking at the kind of spaces that they like I mentioned before with looking into carnival, looking into the local clubs that they were kind of taking spaces in, uh, the local churches that they were kind of using as safe havens to get away from the clashes, even just, you know, grocery stores, anything that was locally owned, even um, like, you know, corner record stores where you would see a lot of the black youth hanging out. These were oftentimes places where, like I said, they felt very safe and they weren't being harassed by police who were constantly coming around these areas. And then just tying that into present day with what's kind of going on now, especially with the present rise in the Black Lives Matter movement on a global scale. It sounds like your research is very focused in the the north of England, if you're working across Leeds, Manchester and Liverpool. Yeah. Is there a big distinction between things that were happening in quote unquote race relations in this period in the north of England when compared to London or the, the south of England? Is it a distinctive situation? Yes, I would say there is a very kind of interesting thing that's going on here because, well, one, there isn't, with the exception of Liverpool, there isn't really any large black communities like on the same scale as the ones you'd see in like London. Uh, London would have the largest, most Black Britons, they were going south because there were a lot more job offers and everything there. But with the North, you see much more smaller communities. So with certain things, they had to be more flexible. Even uh, with the forms of rebellion they were taking place in, a lot of that did include kind of forming unions with nearby marginalized groups. So you'll start to see a lot more inner workings with nearby South Asians and also white working class members. And a lot of them just kind of really had to play it safe just because, like I said, their numbers are so much smaller. Even with organizations like the Black British Panthers, their particular chapters in the North weren't as like largely formed just because of how small like as a groups they were. And this kind of plays a role into how they find their ways. Because, of course, you know, when you're dealing with things like police brutality, you don't want to take any specific risks especially like when you're when you don't really have those large numbers like they do in London where they were able to have those huge marches and another thing with the north especially is how they end up being affected by the fall in industry because the north tends to get economically hit the hardest and then looking at how that not only affects them as working class people but also as black people because when you're looking into a lot of the job hunts and the issues finding housing, a lot of that is kind of like, like a lot of you'll find a lot of white working class members who they were all living in these same neighborhoods and they kind of take out that fallen economy on black Britons and living in these areas. So a lot of places they wouldn't be hired 
because, you know, they don't want to give them their jobs because they don't want them taking their jobs. And then with housing, they also get kind of turned away because they also don't want them coming in and just basically taking over. Like they basically get blamed for everything that happens with the economic fall of industry in the North. So that kind of adds an extra layer, especially when you're kind of getting closer to the riots. And Margaret Thatcher kind of comes out and she's looking at, you know, these areas and she blames it almost entirely on, you know, lack of education, poverty, and that kind of gets made the face of who these people are. So not only are you dealing with the negative stigmas of being working class, but you're also dealing with the negative stigma of being black. And you still see a lot of it now, especially with Ma side, because when I got here outside of Manchester itself, because, you know, while they're in the north, these specific areas get like an extra kind of added label to them. Where it's like, okay, well, Manchester as a northern city, yeah. But then Moss Side is like the no-go zone. It's kind of seen as like a dangerous spot. And the same kind of goes for Toxteth as well, where there's just a lot of negative looks into it as both a working class space, but also as a majority black kind of space as well. And this is something that I also just find really interesting in there. But there's also a lot of similarities because a lot of these black organizations we're all just kind of trying to find ways of unionizing with each other. So you did have people like, you know, like the Black British Panthers who were coming in and they were all just kind of like talking with each other, especially when you're getting into people like Olive Morris, who helped form a lot of feminist collectives in Manchester. And a lot of these people were coming in from London. So there was this kind of way where it was also helping kind of get to know each other and I feel like that also kind of led up to the eventual comfortableness with forming under one label, uh, such as Black British. What kind of sources are you using to tap into those histories? Because a lot of Black Britons are kind of missing a lot of the time from the mainstream stories. Yeah. So with sources, that's always kind of been an interesting thing. Since there is a lot of literature, but usually I have to go out of the bounds of history. Some have recently been produced and some are on the verge of being produced, which is always interesting. So I am using uh, secondary research, like books, you know, like by like Rob Waters, David Olashoga, Hammond Perry. Those are always very helpful for me. But when you're beginning to specifically focus on certain cities, like how I specifically look at the North, that's when it gets a little trickier, uh, just because for the most part, a lot of modern literature coming out kind of focuses on Black Britons as a whole conglomerate. I think it's harder when you kind of get down to a niche. So then that's when primary research really does kind of come into play. So with that, I tend to have to go to a lot of things, like whether it's online or before COVID, you know, going to actual archives. So when I'm kind of looking into these things, I'm looking at newspapers. Um, and with newspapers, I usually have to be careful because they tend to be very heavily doctored. So I take, you know, what I can from it. And also a lot of them would have pamphlets for whatever organizational meetings they were having. There is one, Eloise Edwards Collection for Carnival, where you kind of see a lot of them interacting with each other since when it comes to the carnival formations, they would be sending each other letters and notes about certain things. Sometimes they would just be having random conversation. And that kind of gives me a look into, you know, what they're dealing with, how they're expressing themselves culturally, but also uh, just kind of the natural lifestyle, how they are just kind of living in general, because that's like the main point that I want to look into is 
how they're kind of dealing with life in these communities. Letters and also I found a lot of interviews as well from people who are who are living in Moss Side. And a lot of those interviews also help because when I feel like there's a name attached to it, I feel like it really brings it out more. When you're kind of looking at each of these people's individual stories and then kind of linking them all up together. All of those have been really helpful with producing things. A lot of nearby buildings have really been helpful too, because I get to kind of see where a lot of them would be meeting up. Uh, sometimes they will have certain information given to you at these spots. One of them, it's no longer here, the Reno, but there was an exhibit for it. Mm. And going to the exhibit for the Reno was really helpful because I get to kind of look. I might not be able to go into the actual building, but it gave me a look into the building and how a lot of them at the time were kind of getting along and seeing each other. And there were actually some people who actually were going to the Reno at that time who were at the exhibit. And that gave me just a really connection to work with and seeing how they were like, it was basically a huge safe space, especially for those who were mixed race. And that really helped me get a better sense of the feelings in the neighborhood just thinking about buildings as well you get quite a lot of buildings in the sort of still in the moss side area that have names that are kind of quite evocative you've got a windrush center on mm. alexander road you've got the Catlock center yeah <laughs> near the gym <laughs> yeah definitely kind of like marks yeah. of these uh sort of activists that have been very involved mm. in in shaping the community around there the Catlock center especially um she was really helpful with um, a lot of the activism that was going on. A lot of them were kind of helping with the nearby churches because in a lot of those churches, they were having meetings regarding children because so a lot of activism revolved around education and then helping the youth kind of understand more, not just about like, you know, basic education, but also their own kind of cultural history and giving them a sense of pride in who they are and a lot of, well, when I say youth, also teenagers, these were community centers where they could express themselves, there were activities to do. These were also safe places, like I said, because they were usually avoiding harassment from police officers. Because what I was finding in some places was that a lot of police stations had specific houses kind of on lock where they knew if a Caribbean family lived in this house, they had that on file. So they would usually know where to go. And there would be particular calls from neighbors about specific places. So they always knew which areas to kind of stalk around at. So these community centers were always really helpful, um, especially uh, during the riots. These same churches, a lot of them were going in here and seeking shelter from a lot of the battery that was going on outside. And I just saw like a lot of those buildings just have a lot of life in them. Even um, for the Rock Against Racism organization, they were doing a concert and a lot of, you know, reggae bands who were asked to play at one of the first ones in Manchester, a lot of them were practicing in those churches, like there's a reggae band, Exodus. They were all kind of working around in the space. I have some photos of them, but they were all just kind of there. So there's just so much that's going on in just like two or three buildings. It sounds like such a rich project. There's so many sort of unusual sources and the opportunity to do some really exciting work. We usually ask our guests to bring some kind of uh, lighthearted or funny story from their research or something that's come up in the course of your PhD. It must be tough with your project. 
Yeah, it's difficult because I handle like a lot of uh, mm, <laughs> uh, subject matter. Uh, well, for one, when I was looking into my research, I found the term race relations capital is just hilarious. So I'm like, is it just because there's black people there? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think race relations archive. A wonderful institution, but I find the way that all of those sources are blobbed together strange. They're all, it's so hard to find anything because, I mean, like, no, no offense to the archivists. I know they're doing their jobs and I, I, I do not hate them at all. They've been really helpful. But when I get into them, so many things, like a lot of the times they're not really well marked either. So if you're looking at like the code for it, there's not a description. I don't even have a year to attach it to, but there'll be things like letters, pamphlets, so many things, and they're all just in the box, and it's so hard, because I'm like, how do I use this? Because <laughs> if like there's no year, I don't know where it came from or who it's attached to, what the heck am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> so I'm like sitting just on all this information, and one of the sources I found when I was looking through the photographs, I was like, hey, these look really modern, and only find out that these pictures were taken in 2006. They just got put in the box with the stuff from the 80s. I'm like, uh. So that's been a really interesting thing. But like I said, I do kind of link my research in with what's going into the present day. Because like I said, when it comes to things like institutional racism and the way prejudice and discrimination are handled, it doesn't go away. It just mutates over time. It fits to the time that it's in. Kind of looking at, uh, you know, things like the Black Lives Matter movement in Britain I kind of find it interesting with what's going on now with the recent government announcement that institutional racism doesn't exist in Britain. Because I was like, oh, that's funny. Last time I checked, it did. And then having them called out by the United Nations for falsifying evidence. So that's been a kind of high for me. But then out of everything that went on with this, the one thing that ends up radicalizing the people is the capitalistic nature of football. Like I saw like mass protests about the Super League, I believe it's called. And I was like, all this other stuff that's going on. Even in the context of like everything else that's happened in this country for the last, let's even just say in the last 18 months, this is one people, and it's one thing that people like protested about it or had their feelings about it, like fine. Yeah. It's the one thing the government actually said they'd do something yeah. about. Like, like, you have calls for people to reopen investigations of police brutality in Britain because there were just so many that were coming out of the woodwork that had just been getting slept on. Even one here, not too far from here. But this is the one thing, like, Boris Johnson just comes out and he's like, we're going to take care of it. But I'm like, all this other stuff, though. Because before then, they were like, hey, we don't want you protesting at all. But now it's okay. <laughs> so I'm just like... <laughs> so that's been kind of interesting when it comes to getting into the more reflective part of my research is looking at not only the discrimination that these particular groups of people were facing, but looking at how the nation itself handles the way it chooses to remember its discrimination and how it handles it now. Because one of the beasts that I've been battling is this kind of like rejection of the idea of Britain being a racist country. It's like constant gaslighting of, oh, well, we don't see race the same way, or it's not as bad as it is in America. I'm like, that's not the point. 
it's just kind of deflecting from the actual things that are going on here. And it's just been a huge issue. Like I've even um, talked about it before online. And it's always interesting to kind of see the hostility that comes up. Like some people, they don't want to hear, they don't want, like when we talked about bringing Black British history into the schools, helping kids learn more about it, there were parents who were just like, that's not British history. Why do they need to learn that? They can learn that on their own time. And they're just like, why does it matter? And it just gets really frustrating. I'm pretty sure they do Russian history. Yeah. <laughs> like I, people get really apprehensive when it comes to race or matters of race. They don't like to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. And that's been like a huge beast here. And when I do talk about it, I've been called several racial slurs, some of which I had to look up because I did not know what a gollywog was. Good Lord. I'm like... You're saying that it's not a racist country, but then you call me a racial slayer at the same time. And I'm like, what do you want me to make of this? <laughs> it, it just didn't make any sense to kind of hear from this. And like, you know, honestly, being from the South, like, don't worry for me. Like, I'm used, I'm already desensitized to that sort of thing. But just to kind of see it, it's hilarious to me. Like, just having these blinders on, like, just because you just don't want to face that kind of nature. I'm like, Britain, it's a, it was an empire. Colonization was a thing, and you're telling me they weren't thinking about race at any given point in time? Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something. I suppose that, like, everywhere struggles to contend with the, like, the realities of its past. You're always sort of told a more positive story about yeah. what it was and stuff, and then you have to, like, a lot of growing up, it's like unlearning what you were told as a kid and not using that as the foundation for the, your understanding mm. of the world. Yeah. It must be really interesting to come up against it yourself as a black American. Yeah, because one, I get gaslit because they're like, well, you're from America. It's not the same. Racism the same here. I'm like, yo, I, I know racism I, when I see it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and then two, just kind of dealing with that like I said that hostility because I'm constantly battling against the question why does it matter and I feel like that's like the most hurtful thing sometimes where it's like why why shouldn't it matter they were people they were here they're still here they still get affected by the things that are going on and that's the problem too is that okay like I get shut down because of my American perspective but so many black British writers have come up themselves and talked about their own issues like with battling discrimination, like like David Olashoga. But even then, they're just like, oh, I don't care, shut up. <laughs> so I'm like, what do you want? <laughs> and that's just been a very interesting thing to deal with is like yeah. that constant shutting down. And like I said, like when you kind of feel like you're the only one sometimes, because uh, so far, I don't think I've met any others in the program. Even in the masters, it was like me and one other person. Uh, you mean other black scholars? Yeah, and that was just always very difficult because I found myself in spaces where I was the only one talking about this and I am being asked, why does it matter? Well, I'm like, it should and it should be introduced in the curriculum because it can't be separated from the curriculum. And it always kind of gets interesting having to go up against those things like constantly. But by then I was already used to it because in undergrad, I was also the only one. So it's just kind of been forever, except I think here... In a university setting, it was slightly less hostile because in undergrad, I used to get followed out of classrooms and yelled at. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is so, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry that that is a thing that you had to deal with. No worries. I think that to some extent when you're a, 
I'm not comparing my work to yours because it's very different, but like when you are working on something that's marginal and marginalized, you're always going to have people coming up to you like, why does this matter? I suppose that's part of the history PhD experience, right? Like, yeah. But there's, it's very different to have someone say it to your face and not sort of recognize it's like inherent significance to you as a person to not even think about like, not just because what they're really saying is like, why doesn't this just stay in its lane? Why doesn't it just stay in its box? Like that belongs to you and you can worry about it, but I shouldn't have to, to think about it and I shouldn't be confronted by it. And it's... Like I say, like you just get, you just kind of have to like soldier on with it, no matter how many people and Q and A's you have to fight. So that's what really pisses me off about people questioning the validity of what we do in general, but in particular with marginalized histories, is the fact that there are all of those people mm. making a career out of playing football, and nobody questions that they kick a ball around a field, producing nothing. Nothing, and nobody questions that, and everyone gets incredibly passionate when something wrong is happening there. Well, something wrong is happening in history and has been happening for centuries, where yeah. like the only stories that are getting told are the stories of white old men who sit in palaces and like get to write their own history. And why are we not equally angry about it is annoying yeah it didn't make any sense seeing all those people out there because um they kind of tried to form it into this narrative of like the super league being like a this domineering force trying to take down the working class i'm like it, well also that was also kind of hard for me in general just because you know american football is already super capitalistic in nature like everything they're trying to do now we've had for like ever <laughs> but with that it was just interesting kind of seeing that kind of pride in it, especially with um, how it ties in with nationalism. Because uh, so many of them, they had, I believe it's the George's Cross, the specific flag for England. Yeah. I usually see that a lot. And just kind of seeing how it ties in with that. Because like that's the only time they really care is when it only specifically affects them. That's one of the other frustrating things about my research is that I'm constantly getting railroaded by people where I'm talking about my things. And they're just like, what about the white working class? Okay, yes, they were there and they were they were allies and stuff, but I'm like, this is not what my research is about. I can't devote all this other time about something that I'm not specifically focusing on. I'll mention it. There is significance there, but I can't just keep doing that. And they're like, okay, well, what about the inclusion of the Irish? And I'm like, you're talking about something else entirely. And I mean, there are scholars doing that. That's exactly what I was going to say. There's actually quite a developed body of work. Like, there's still work to be done on the British working class in the second half of the the 20th century, for sure. But there is much more work already done. And so what, you wouldn't be filling a gap if you did that. You'd be reiterating someone else's work. You're making your contribution. I'm sure you get asked that a lot, but... To our listeners who are more interested in educating themselves, who would be the writers that you would recommend about Black British history and about race relations in the UK? Race relations, quote unquote. Well, a lot of them, well, one would definitely be David Olashoga. He's done a lot of work, a lot of really interesting documentaries. If you're one of those people like me where reading is very hard for you, those are really helpful. Um, Rob Waters has so much work. Also, Kenetta Hammond-Perry. Kenetta Hammond-Perry, she does a lot of um, looks 
into a lot of the transatlantic kind of ties. So looking at, you know, Black British people and also looking at some African-Americans who were in Britain and kind of looking at how all they were kind of just transgressing all over together. It's very interesting to look at. There are also a few more. Uh, I know uh, I, I have, I'm like surrounded by books right now, actually. <laughs> if you're looking into older stuff, then Chris Millard is also a good one. Peter Fryer, definitely. If you're looking more into not just the historical, but also the sociological uh, those are a lot of like the main ones that I've been lucky enough to find. <laughs> yeah, and um, this one, she specifically looks at Liverpool, but Jacqueline Nassie Brown is also a good one. Absolutely an amazing list to start with, you know, looking into Black British history and understanding it better. And thank you so much, Lyra, for being our guest today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Georgia, for co-hosting. Always a pleasure. And as usual, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.